in his book, uh, Famous Last Words, Ray Robinson has a collection of notable last recorded words of well-known people like writers and philosophers, good guys and bad guys, kings and queens, athletes, movie stars, you know. Uh, very interesting. Some are very optimistic words. Some are very fatalistic. Uh, some are very funny. Uh, really reveals last words they do really reveal what's the person all about. Some, when facing death, just wish to say goodbye to loved ones, and others want to leave kind of a legacy with what they say and exhort and bless and what have you. And some are just plain caught off guard. For example, Civil War General Son John Sedgwick uh, his troops were urging him to duck and take cover. His last words and his response to that was, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. <laughs> dist was his last word. And it's okay to chuckle. You're not, uh, you're not doing anything wrong by chuckling because he is reportedly a Christian was a Christian, and so he probably has a smile on his face right now. Jesus Christ said this, whoever trusts in me will live forever. And he trusted, and so we can laugh. Well, other words aren't so funny. Uh, P.T. Barnum, the circus entrepreneur, his last words. How many tickets did we sell today at Madison Square Garden? Where your treasure is, there your heart as well. Another sad one, Joan Crawford, pretty famous line, olden day Hollywood star of 20s and the 30s and the 40s. Her maid began silently sort of praying for her as she lay dying. And she said something profane and said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Last words. On a happier note, Tim Tebow's last words. No, no. Oh, no, no, no. Not a happier note. No. Shall we? Uh, yeah, skip over that. Uh, John Wesley, a Christian theologian from the 1700s, founder of the Methodist movement, he said three times over and over again, best of all, God is with us, and then he passed away. D.L. Moody, the American evangelist, kind of the Billy Graham of the 1800s, uh, he said, earth fades away, heaven now opens to me. Well, like D.L. Moody, the Apostle Peter has gotten the sense that his days on earth are fading and heaven will soon be opening to him. But not first without him having something to say, and that would be 2 Peter. Three chapters, his final testament, really. You'll find out even this morning that he is aware that his time on earth is short. So, He's really giving a shout out to Christians because he wants you to be productive and effective. He never wants to see you fall. 
and he wants to see you have a rich reward into uh, the kingdom of God at the end of your life. And so picking up at verse 12, so I will always remind you of these things even though you know them, you're firmly established in the truth you know, now have, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know, I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure or death, you will always be able to remember these things. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love with him. I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we finished up the chapter there, and now we're going to reflect on this portion of chapter one. Uh, these 10 verses form a bridge between two ideas one, that we need to be living morally excellent lives, and the main point also is for us to be warned against false doctrine, false teachers that were coming against the Christian church. And so that's the main point of 2 Peter. You're in the bridge getting you ready for a chapter exposing false teachers and warning you to stay clear of that. And so he's really saying this now, if you're going to remain firmly established in the faith, here in these 10 verses, there are three ideas. Number one, Get used to being spiritually reminded of the gospel truths over and over again, that we live a lifestyle of being reminded of the same simple truth over and over and over again. So number one, get used to being reminded. It's necessary. Number two, trust the testimony of the apostles, that the gospel came through God's appointed messengers, the apostles, the apostle, uh, the word apostle means messenger, and that we are to trust that the gospel comes in, in a historical setting through eyewitnesses and earwitnesses as well. So he says, number two, uh, the gospel is credible. You have credible witnesses. Trust the testimony of the apostles. And number three, believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible. That the word of God is just that, not the word of man. God used holy men to write, and God breathed through them his word 
that is supernatural and living. It is unlike any other words that we have here in our possession. And so with that, we take a look at point number one. He uses a whole paragraph to say, hey, look, you really need to be reminded. And in a very polite way, he says in your text, look, I know you know these things, and I know you're doing them, and don't get offended or bothered that I'm reminding you of these simple things. Don't get offended. Don't get defensive when you hear me telling you things that a Sunday school uh, student would know and would be doing. And so he's just saying it's a good thing. <laughs> the gospel is truth worth repeating. And uh, you can't miss that here in this opening paragraph of your text. Verse 12, therefore I intend on always reminding you. Verse 13, I think it's a good thing that I refresh your memory. Verse 15, I will make every effort that even when I'm gone you'll be reminded of these things. So here's what he's saying in short. I am writing to remind you by way of reminder, so that you may be able to recall these things. And then in his final chapter, chapter 3, that we're, we're coming into uh, after chapter 2, it, it says, well, you know, there is one thing in the way of chapter 3, chapter 2. And here's how he starts chapter 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders. I want you to remember the words spoken uh, by the holy prophets and the commands given by the Lord. And so what do you make of this? Uh, it's, it's pretty uh, pretty blatant. It's very uh, clear. In order for you to finish well, to be effective and a productive Christian, and escaping uh, things like falling, and, and getting to heaven in one piece with shoulders back and eyes clear of regret, he says that you will need to return to the things you've already learned, and that will necessitate a daily, moment-by-moment moment, reminding. And so he's saying, just because you know the facts and you're aware of the truth and you've learned something, doesn't mean you're necessarily utilizing it or enjoying the benefits of knowing and having that knowledge. I mean, we can all understand that. Um, you know, I certainly mentally remember all the time that Jesus Christ died for my sins. But when I have moments of guilt and dread, I have in a practical sense, forgotten that Jesus died for my sins and put them away and washed me clean. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. But sometimes I forget. Did I really forget? I didn't truly forget, but I needed to be reminded. Oh, yes, Romans 8, 1, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, yes, I'm reminded. But it seems to me 
The human condition requires constant spiritual reminding, and it would do well, he says, for you not to get bored, not to get defensive, not to be insulted that somebody is repeating over to you or that you have to open the same book and read the same lines over and over and over again. Do not let familiarity breed contempt because you are such a weak and fickle human being and so morally inclined to sin. You need constant reminding, says Peter. And he says, it's a good thing. He says, I know you got it. I know you get this. I know you're, quote, well-established in these things. But still, let me remind you, because five minutes in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it goes all out the window. You know, you've got a new challenge financially. Suddenly, oh no, what am I going to do? Panic sets in. And then you're reminded, oh yeah, my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Need to be reminded to connect the dots. The God that has been faithful thus far is his bond that he will continue to be faithful, but we forget. Therefore, he says, you'll need to be reminded. A great example of how weak we are, Mark chapter 6, the disciples. Uh, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, up to 10,000 in the group, with five little buns and two little fish. Uh, he has compassion. They've been with him three days. He says, where are we going to get the food? They say, oh, we don't know where you're going to get the food. Oh, what, what do we have? We've got five little buns and two little fish. And he says, give them to me and watch what I can do. Two chapters later. During those days, meaning the days he just did that miracle, another large crowd gathered since they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and said the same thing he just said before. I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And his disciples say, Quote, but where in this remote place could anyone get enough bread to feed them? Now, Jesus, it says in the Greek there, you can't really pick it up in English, but he rolled his eyes. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Same lines, same setup. And Jesus saying, hey, guys, where do you suppose? I want to feed them again. I want to give them bread and fish. I wonder where we could get that. And they say, we don't know. <laughs> and he said, could you flip back two little chapters and refresh your memories? After that miracle of the 4,000, they get in the boat, and they're talking about not having enough bread for the next journey. So Jesus says, are you really so dull? And I'm quoting the Lord. Are, can this be true? Are you really that dull? I, I mean, honestly, he says, can we talk about two chapters ago? How, do you remember what happened? Yes. 
Did you have enough fish? Yes. How many baskets were left over? Twelve. Okay, the second time. Did everybody get fed? Yes. How many baskets left over then? Seven. Okay, so you had leftover bread the first time. 10,000 people fed the first time, maybe nine, 8,000 the second time. Lots of bread left over. And now you're in the boat and you're scratching your heads going, I wonder where we're going to get the next meal. <laughs> Are you really that dull? The answer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We really are. And please do not point your fingers at them and say, wow, those guys are dumbbells. <laughs> because every time you get a new bill in the mail or, or, or the IRS says, whoops, something about your taxes, you're like, oh, oh no, what am I going to do? Israel, the same way. Israel, God busts them out of a slave pit. Ten plagues. Read those ten plagues. They witnessed them. Then a pillar of fire leading them, protecting them from the armies, covering them over this cloud of glory, shading them from the Mediterranean sun, and then Pharaoh's horsemen coming in, closing in to wipe them out. Pillar of fire gets in the way, opens the sea and says, you first. <laughs> and, and they go through the sea. They come out the other side. The Lord says, okay, Pharaoh, you and your boys can come in. And they go in and God closes the sea on top. They break into songs and praises. And then a handful of verses later, we're all going to die. There's no water where are we going to get water to drink? Where are we going to get a cup of water? Where are you going to get a cup of water? Perhaps it's from the pillar of fire. Maybe it could be from the power of the God who just split the sea in half for you to walk through and then make Pharaoh's chariot tires fall off. Maybe he could get you a glass of water. So Peter says, don't get offended but we're going to be telling you things over and over and over again because sometimes we are like little kids that it goes in, spiritual truth goes in one ear, and where does it go? Out the other, you know? We don't totally forget, but in the moment, we do. How sad that God has to prove himself and we have to go back to building block A every single time. You know what he told Israel? He said, Israel, here's what I want you to do. Every time I do something fantastic and come through for you in the clutch, build a little memorial. Take some stones out of the Jordan. I just split the Jordan for the second time, a body of water for my people to go through. This time, hey, here's what I want you to do. Just pile up some rocks, 12, for all 12 tribes of you. Every time you go by and when your kids go by, you could say, hey, <laughs> Remember God's power? Remember what God just did? So in your future challenges, you won't forget, you won't freak out, you won't panic, you won't act like you don't have a God in heaven, and we have to go back to all the way to the first beginning chapters of the Bible. We won't have to do that because you could look at the stones and go, ha, ah, God has been my help up this far, and he who has been my help this far will continue to see me through to the end. So he says, hey, be reminded the gospel is like three sentences. 
And we hear it for a lifetime over and over and over again. The gospel truths are very simple. Now, my uh, wife's grandma B, who's now with the Lord, she lived into her 90s, uh, 96 or 97, when she went to heaven. Uh, but she uh, was on her own with her in her 90s. She's driving around and taking care of herself. She used to take ginkgo biloba, and she used to say it just helped her with her memory. Well, God has some ginkgo biloba for all of his children. John 14, 26 says this. Jesus says, I'm sending you a reminder. He's called the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, 26, here's what he says. The Holy Spirit who comes into your heart and resides inside you upon faith in Jesus Christ. And here's his mission statement. He will remind you. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, you will forget every single time. Our default mechanism in the human heart is human understanding and a walk by sight, not by faith. That's where we go when we're out of touch with the Holy Spirit and our prayer time and our devotional and our scriptures that we're meditating on. The second we break from this moment, the heart goes back to what I see and touch and taste and feel. It's only in moments like this where you're being reminded, oh, yes, well, when I go back home, it's not just this problem. It's God is working around it and in it and through it. And that's one of the reasons he's got corporate worship. The Lord's day revolves weekly, and God put it that way to remind his people who are constantly forgetting. He says, don't, don't give up meeting together as is the habit of some. Because this is the way God reminds you of the truth that sets your hearts free and keeps you that way. Try unplugging from corporate worship. Try not reading your Bible for a month. Try not checking in with him in prayer. Listen to only secular music and, and then see that your reminders are few and far between. God even says, hey, the Lord's Supper, I'm instituting something I want you to do as a remembrance. Everything about the Christian life and discipline is geared to remind you because you are prone and I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But he says, listen, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16, Live by the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.25, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Because when you're like this and filled up and walking, keeping in step with who? The reminder. You'll be fine. That You know, the iPhone is a wonderful thing. I mean, well, mostly. <laughs> but it... When it reminds me, it'll go bloop, 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 and up comes a reminder, it saves me. It's like, oh, that would have been a disaster. And I'll tell you what, my friend, when you're in a situation, 
and sin and the devil and everything's coming against you. And you don't have that little bloop, bloop, bloop that says no temptation has seized you, which is not common to everybody. But God is faithful who with that very temptation will provide a way for you to escape and the strength so that you can withstand it. He will not bring you anything you cannot bear. That's in the word. That's a reminder. But if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, you're not reading your Bible every day, you're not listening to worship music, you're not in corporate worship, you don't get those reminders. And then, boom, you're in trouble. Same stuff, same truths, over and over again. Uh, Listen to what one commentator said. This isn't an excuse for preachers to bore people to tears with the same basic points over and over again every Sunday. Boring preaching may indicate the pastor's own lack of growth. But we also find preachers who are constantly seeking for the new, novel, different thing who tend to abandon gospel basic, simple truths in their quest to impress their listeners with how relevant they are. Such preaching may be intellectually stimulating, but without constant reiteration of the basic Bible truths and doctrines, it will produce Christians without foundation, weak, ineffective, and unproductive. The key is teaching the simple Bible truths with fresh insight and with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But my friend, it's the same stuff over and over again, and we need it. We need it, we prove that every day. So let us daily live to be reminded through our attentiveness to the Holy Spirit, through our Christian brothers and sisters, through our consciences, our pastors, and our daily time in God's word, and through our weekly corporate worship on the Lord's day, may all things serve to draw us back over and over to the same simple truths that set our hearts free and keep them that way. So we got it. He says, hey, know you know it. (laughs) Not, Not meaning to insult your intelligence, but can we just go over the basics of living a good moral life as Christians? It'll keep you safe. Number two, uh, the testimony, being able to, tr- to trust the, how the gospel comes through the authority of God's messengers, the apostles. So here's a paraphrase of that little paragraph. We're not making this up as we go along, as we're being accused of. We're not inventing these stories about Jesus coming in power and glory. We saw his majesty with our own eyes. We heard God's audible voice speaking through the clouds. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We were standing right there next to him. We heard it with our own ears. So, clearly, Peter's thoughts now are turning to the false teachers that are threatening to destroy the Christian church of that day as is the case even 2,000 years later. Uh, Number one, they will attack the apostles' credibility and accuse them of inventing stories, uh, particularly the second coming, 
where there's a judgment. And so they are saying these are cleverly invented stories. In the Greek, deceitfully concocted um, stories. In the King James has fables. It means it's the Greek word muthos, where we get the word myth. So these false teachers are coming around and saying, hey, you got some of it, but there's no second coming. Please, Jesus bursting through the clouds. And, and then a great white throne where you will be evaluated and judgment day. No, 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 no. Here's, and that happens today too, by the way. The reason why they want to write off the, the second coming and the judgment is because one will... One, uh, one did not have to worry about the way one lived when there's no judgment to come. So the false teachers are like, let's do away with the second coming, with the evaluation and judgment so that we can use grace as a license to sin. So he says, hey, we didn't make this stuff up. Are you kidding me? Let me tell you the story. So he says, we were standing there. And John, you know what John said? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands handled and touched concerning the word of life. He says, we now proclaim to you. I'm not making this stuff up. We were in his presence. We saw these things happen. We heard the voice. And so Peter begins to launch his offensive here, uh, the gospel has historical roots and it's verified by eyewitnesses. He's saying, look, there is such a day coming. Time will end. Human history will come to a close. And everybody and every knee will bow before the God of the universe. And he says, and he gives two uh, causes for your assurance that that's true. One is the eyewitness testimony of apostles who had seen kind of a dress rehearsal for the second coming, which he's going to tell you about, the transfiguration. All right? And number two is the reliability of prophecy, which we cover next. All right, so here's what he's saying. He's saying, we heard this voice. We heard what Jesus said. They're going to deny the second coming. Let us tell you a little bit about what we saw. And so he says, Jesus said to us, in those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of the son of God will appear in the sky and every eye shall see him as lightning comes from the east to the west, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see me coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Peter says, we heard that. But more than that, we saw a demonstration of the power fitting for the one who would make such a claim. So he goes to the transfiguration. Very interesting to me that he goes there. Notice he doesn't say, hey, look, we know Jesus could be the one coming on the clouds with great power and glory because he raised the dead. <laughs> because we were on the boat one day, we were in the boat on the water one day, and Jesus walked on the water. He doesn't do that. 
He doesn't say, hey, there was this leper with half a nose and three fingers. He came up and Jesus touched him and bam, healed, cleansed. One day we were out and this demoniac came out naked, screaming, gouging himself with rocks, shackles on his arms. And Jesus sent 2,000 demons into a bunch of swine. That's how we know he's coming back. No, 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 no. He picks a story very interesting. He says, we saw a prelude to the second coming. We went up on this hill, Peter, James, and John, and we saw him changed. It's not called a transformation. It's called a transfiguration because Jesus didn't change from something that he wasn't to something else. We found out who he really was hiding behind a human body incognito. So he was transfigured. And what does the Bible say? His face was changed. Luke 9, 29. He was shining like the sun. Matthew 17. Clothes became dazzling white. Beyond a white of human understanding. Mark 9, verse 3. So he's saying here, the one who claims to come in the sky at the end, in this glorious display of divine majesty, has already done it in our presence. We saw it happen. In fact, my friends, and this will help you, there's a line in the gospel where Jesus says, hey, just so you know, there are some standing here who will not die before they see the Son of God coming in glory. Next verse, not three verses later, next verse, transfiguration. What he meant by that, and not by, not what the detractors say that he meant, that he, was, that he didn't know what he was saying, that he made an error, because that, that time hasn't come yet, and those apostles have died, what he's talking about, Jesus is the transfiguration. He's saying, you're going to get a glimpse of the second coming. But I'm going to show it to you on this hill. And he did, and the glory came, and the face changed, and, and the second person of the Godhead just kind of flexed his muscles just a little bit and said, this is who I really am, the one who came down from heaven. Let me show you a little glimpse of that. And it made them crazy. Peter, it says, was out of his mind. And then he says, let me tell you, let me link this, a voice, Yahweh, you Jews. Yahweh speaks and says, this is my son. From Psalm chapter 2, where he's quoting a line that says, this son is the conqueror of the nations. So now we have God, Yahweh, saying, this is the Messiah who will conquer the world. In whom I am well pleased, quoting Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, the suffering servant who will die as a sin offering to make men right with God. So you have in all of this glory a revelation from Yahweh. This is the God-man. God in all his glory and man as a substitute who will bear the sins of the world on the cross. 
And so it's very important. He's saying, we know the second coming is going to happen, not because we have to take it by faith. No, we've already seen the one getting ready for all of that. And you can rest assured that that day is coming. The voice from heaven links Jesus with the purpose and glory and majesty and mission of God himself. So he says, let's cooperate with the reminding we embrace the apostles' teaching, and finally, we believe the prophets and the scriptures that they come from God. Now, here's a little paraphrase of that last uh, portion of your text. Because of Jesus' transfiguration, the Old Testament prophets are validated, and we have even more confidence in the scriptures. So it's crucial you pay very close attention to the word like a lamp that helps you walk through pitch darkness until that day, the day the Lord dawns and he appears and his work in your heart will be fully realized. And more importantly, don't forget, it was God speaking through those men, the prophets. The scriptures don't come from men or their own ideas, but through, through men who were filled and steered by God's Holy Spirit. So um, Jesus' revelation really gives credibility to the Old Testament prophets. So what he's saying is, look, everything Jesus did and was is in line and in keeping with the hundreds of prophecies that you Jews have in your scrolls. And so you can rely on them after I'm gone. I want you to understand that this these scrolls, the word of God, which we call the Old Testament, is reliable because they were talking about this powerful coming of the Son of God from the beginning in Genesis, Enoch. Enoch prophesies what? He says, seventh from Adam, Enoch prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 he has a vision he sees someone like the son of God coming with great clouds of glory from heaven in fact all the prophets Moses David Job Isaiah Jeremiah Ezekiel Joel Malachi all of them talk about this powerful coming and so he's saying listen when I'm gone you've got the word of God and it will guide you as a light in the darkness. The word there for darkness, a very rare word, it's only used one time in the New Testament. In other writings, it always refers, it means murky, it means uh, gloomy, and it's used for hell. So it's the spiritual darkness. He says, look, I may be gone, but you've got the word of God. It will, in the spiritual darkness of this world, in the darkness of your own heart, in your darkness of a world that's under the spell of the evil one, that word of God will be your light to make sure you make it safely through the gates of eternal life. He says, rely on it. It comes from God. And then it's just a beautiful description as a light, like Psalm 119. 105, 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And this is a a common metaphor of the word of God. Use the light as a guide, a weapon, a shield. Walk by its light, live by its light until the day of the Lord dawns. Meditate on the word of God. Learn it, read it, listen to it, sing it. Bow before it and practice it. Love it, crave it, listen to it, memorize it, share it. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, and during the day. The word of God, don't underestimate its power to heal you, to correct you, to give you life. Listen to this. James 1.21, therefore get, all, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Word of God is a vehicle that will take you all the way home. Use it, and he says in a poetic, beautiful way, he says, until that day dawns. So he's saying the day of the Lord is like this for us, a gentle sunrise that, you know, for most of us, we, all of us, we got called out of darkness. There's a little bit of light. Jesus, the light of the world comes in. We get a little bit of glimpse and that should be growing as we live our Christian lives. But he says, when that day, the trumpet sounds and boom, the day, meaning the daylight as well, the day appears, the lights come on. For us, it's just like a sunrise. We saw this coming, (laughs) We saw it start a little glimmer and it got brighter and brighter and brighter and then ba-ba-da-dum and boom. We, we are children of the light. That's why we're called to live like that. Not so with the wicked. The atheists, those who do their own thing and disobey the gospel, it's not going to be a gentle morning dawn and the morning star rising in their hearts. It's going to be like the lights come on like a, from a police helicopter in the middle of the night. It is not going to be well received by them. But listen to that poetic way, he says. And the morning star will rise in your hearts. He's saying on that great day at the second coming, Jesus, who's called the morning star after really Venus, the planet, it makes its appearance right before dawn, and they called the morning star. Jesus, who comes into our hearts at the beginning, like I said, a little bit of a glimmer, and then by the time the second coming arrives, he has increased in your life so much that the fullness of that star, that light has come. It has dawned in your life. When you see him, you will know fully as you are fully known. You shall see him. You will be like him because you will see him as he is. You will be changed. So he says that star has started in you. I love the proverb that just says this, 418 The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. You see, I came out of that disco June 3rd, 1979, out of darkness, literally, into his light. But it's been a little light. It's just like it's rising. It's getting a little bit brighter. The older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord. But he says, one day... 
the light will reach its fullest zenith and you will be fully consumed, perfected, never again wrestling your thoughts, never again darkness, for nothing dark will ever enter that kingdom. In fact, there is no sun anymore. That is really a thought to behold. No need for sun or moon or stars, for the glory of God will light that place. So Peter is saying, look, the way to get there in this dark, sick, perverted world in which you, holding out the word of light, shine like stars, the way to get there is be constantly reminded. Embrace the testimony of God's messengers and take the word of God. Embrace it and live by it. And that will take you in past the gates. You will, as Peter says, by uh, indirect observation, death for the Christian, he says, this tent, this temporary tent I'm about to lay aside. And when you do these things, you will lay your temporary tent aside and you will be received into heaven in your spiritual body at the second coming. Your body this body that you have today will be resurrected and reunited, perfectly changed in every way, well suited for eternity. But that body and none other, your own body reunited with your spiritual body, there's some kind of temporary thing to be absent from the tent is to be present with the Lord, not sleeping, but to be present with somebody. If I say, and I'm on a little side thing here, as most of you have noticed, <laughs> if I say, come on over, I want to be with you, you know, 2 a.m., I'll be asleep, but make yourself at home. Come on in. That doesn't make any sense. To be present with the Lord, to leave our bodies, is to be engaged in a cognitive relationship with the living God. We lay our tent aside, this temporary dwelling that we don't get too excited about. You don't get too excited about a tent. He calls it a schema, a tent. That's not what you pour all your money into and all your hope and your dreams it's your more permanent dwelling, your house that God provides. So he says, you one day, like me soon, unfortunately for him at the time, or fortunately because it's all in the Lord's hands, when we lay our tent aside, we follow these principles, we walk into uh, heaven with a rich reward, no regrets, and not to mention all the peace and the effective Christian living and blessing because we do these three things. We remind ourselves daily. We receive through God's messengers, the apostles who are eyewitnesses, historical grounded account, and we believe the word of God. The last thing he said was, and by the way, men wrote the Bible, yeah, the Holy Spirit wrote through the men 40 different authors over 2,000 years 
uh, 66 books, one complete harmonious story. It is the work of the living God. It is the word of God. It brings radiance to your eyes and healing to our souls and life everlasting. It is from God, not the work of men. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for saving us and using the word of God in such powerful ways. We pray that you would remind us of these truths in the days to come. In Jesus' name, amen.